0: Welcome to Behind the Curtain, L.A. Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us.
1: Hello, I'm James Conlon, and I'm here to welcome you to L.A. Opera's production of Tannhäuser. And as is our custom, I like to give a talk before the performance We can't do it inside right now because of COVID restrictions. So we are taping this message, and we'll show it to all of you. And I hope you're going to enjoy it. And I hope you're going to enjoy the opera today. Before we start looking into the drama of Tannhäuser, I'd like to challenge us all with a vision of romanticism as expressed by the great writer and thinker Isaiah Berlin. There is an optimistic version of romanticism in which What the Romantics feel is that by going forward, by expanding our nature, by destroying the obstacles in our path, we are liberating ourselves and allowing our infinite nature to soar to greater heights and to become wider, deeper, freer, more vital, more like the divinity towards which it strives. But there is another, more pessimistic version of this, a notion that, Although we individuals seek to liberate ourselves, there is something in the dark depths of the unconscious or of history which frustrates our dearest wishes. Now, that's a quote from Isaiah Berlin and his book, The Roots of Romanticism. So, dichotomy and inner struggle fueled the muses of the 19th century. Richard Wagner harnessed those muses and changed the artistic world, His music dramas thrived on those contradictions and struggles and left us with an artistic legacy that provoked and engendered other polemics and conflicts. Musicians, poets, artists, critics, and opera audiences have adored, detested, deified, condemned, admired, and rejected Wagner, his music, and his prose. His person and the sometimes violent reaction his works provoked are extensions of those conflicting versions of romanticism to which Berlioz refers. The vast cosmic canvas upon which his works were conceived is mirrored by the tremors that these very works caused. And yet, though this composer wrote more about the theory and practice of his art than any other in our history, and has perhaps been written about more than any other composer, his actual dramatic material is remarkably simple. I mean that not in the sense that it isn't complex, but that through the repeated use of prototypes and themes, he revisits several issues over the course of his 10 music dramas. Let's start with the male protagonist. Wagner viewed himself as a misunderstood genius who, due to his superior gifts and understanding, was a hero. As such, he was also an outsider. Each of Wagner's male protagonists is an outsider in his own way. Each comes from a different place from the world in which he finds himself. Some dare, like Adam and Eve, to eat the forbidden fruit or tempt the gods. Tannhäuser embraces the pagan revelations of Venus and Venusberg. The Flying Dutchman makes a pact with the devil. Lohengrin literally comes from another spiritual world. Tannhäuser lives a Faustian struggle. Unable to integrate spiritual and sensual love, he ventures out of his society to Venusberg, where he feels that he experiences erotic love in a way none of his acquaintances have. Imbued now with a message, he feels simultaneously superior and rejected when he returns to society. When he sings his song of praise for Venus, he has an artist revealing a new unheard of music. He is now outsider, artist, and genius. He is a projection of Wagner's image of himself. Now later, in Die Meistersinger von Nuremberg, Walter von Stolzing, another young hero who brings new music to the world, will represent the young Wagner. Unlike Tannhäuser, who defies an opposing father figure to do so, represented by Landgraf Hermann and more distantly, the pope, Walter is adopted by a good father figure in the form of Hans Sachs. Now let's move to the female protagonists. Wagner's heroines embody the concept of the, quote, self-sacrificing eternal feminine, unquote, a masculine projection, to be sure. They are usually the bearer of the composer's most potent cosmic force, redemptive love. And they almost always prove their love by dying for their men, All are virginal at the beginning of the opera, and most remain so until the end. Venus, on the other hand, represents the absolute triumph of eroticism. The splitting of the feminine principle into competing sensual and spiritual components represented by Venus and Elizabeth is emblematic of the 19th century's inability or unwillingness to harmonize these seemingly conflicting forces. Wagner later revisited this idea in Parsifal, not with two characters, but by incorporating them both in unreconciled form in the person of Kundry. Now for some of the recurring ideas in Wagner's music dramas, A medieval singing contest is at the center of both Tannhäuser and Die Meistersingers, operas whose subjects are about art and love. The young heroes of those operas Tannhäuser and Walter usher in a new age of art, though their fates are different. The title character of Wagner's last opera, Parsifal, will relive the erotic spiritual struggle as Tannhäuser does, though he will encounter and resolve them in a different way. Redemptive love may be the proposed panacea for the universe, but we and the world have to endure suffering first. Renunciation is, perhaps, the antidote to that other ubiquitous force, desire. Tannhäuser must journey to Rome to atone for his sinful embrace of pagan delights. In Tristand and Isolde, it is desire, not hope, that springs eternal. It can only be satisfied through death. If the ring has any protagonist at all, it is not a person, nor a god, but a cosmology, that demonstrate that desire in the form of lust for power drives human and godly actions and leads inevitably to universal cataclysm. It is only through the renunciation of this desire that redemption, rebirth, and the restoration of the world's natural order can occur. Big themes? Absolutely, one and all. Dated? Perhaps. Politically incorrect in our day? very possibly. Irrelevant, not in the slightest. Tannhäuser, second in the series of ten great Wagnerian music dramas, encompasses everything Isaiah Berlin describes in his pessimistic version of Romanticism. Tannhäuser never triumphs. Elizabeth dies. But to my mind, by experience this drama in the Opera House, we actually live a part of the optimistic version to which Berlin refers, and to allow our infinite nature to soar. Let's break Tannhäuser down to its most fundamental elements, spiritual love, sensual love. Almost everything in this opera revolves around that conflict. We experience it through the inner torment that Tannhäuser feels about that struggle. But in fact, every society, in one way or the other, deals with that dichotomy. Is love primarily sensuous or spiritual? Or is it both? Now, Wagner, through the person of Tannhäuser and the telling of his story, is able to isolate these two elements for us beautifully through the music. So there is going to be a strain of religious music, uplifted music, that's going to speak to us about the spiritual love, we'll even call it romantic love, so long as it is chaste, so long that it is not fully sensual. In the orchestral prelude, we are literally going to have a preview of the play we are about to see. And Wagner is going to represent the most important elements through identification. First identification, the first theme we are going to hear is that of spirituality. And it is represented by the pilgrim's chorus. It is based on structures that are similar to the Bach chorales, but with an important difference. It has very free-flowing, harmonic changes, and of course, it is not in the traditional 4-4 of a chorale, but in 3-4. It's a sort of march in 3-4, but the important thing is we are inspired to think spiritual thoughts and have spiritual feelings when we hear this first motive in the orchestra. Now here's a little cultural artifact, not from Wagner, not from 19th century Germany, but from our very own Hollywood. Here is the Pilgrim's Chorus reset with a new text.
0: my love, a longing burns deep inside me. not you always be beside me? Love, why cause a
1: Just as we've seen that the Marx Brothers were able to draw from Verdi's Il Trovatore, father for their comedies, we now can see how Warner Brothers took the Pilgrim's Chorus and what they did with it. Now we're going to hear a second idea. And this is the idea of penitence, remorse, praying for forgiveness. It's going to start out in the cellos and it's going to be echoed by the violins. And it is going to represent not the faith of belief, but of the importance for atonement on the part of us all sinners. Now, the prelude changes dramatically in the middle, and we suddenly are confronted with a new music, exciting, fever pitch, revelry. What is it? This is Venusberg. This is where there seems to be an eternal party going on at all hours satyrs, nymphs, fauns, youths, cupids. It's sensual love day and night, every day of the year, every year of existence. So, this is, of course, a very literally seductive idea. And it gives us thrilling feelings of all these things. Now, I'm going to play you an extended excerpt. And there are going to be basically about five or six sections. And I'll identify them as we pass them. I'll talk over the music. There's our fever of love. And now it's revelry here. Static cries, desire, revelry, fire, and a repeat. That's the fire of love. You can see the flames. So it's a combination of excitement, fire, sensuous fire, and the fear of hell as our fevered pitch again. Now a theme of desire. You can feel both the emotional yearning and the physical urgency of this, repeating over and over again. And you feel it build up the way many years later, Tristan and Isolde. Now, we are going to hear Tanoiser's song of praise for Venus. And here it is. The full orchestra plays it for us. Later, we're going to hear him sing it in Act 1 and again at the singing contest in Act 2. Second part of his song. And this will build up to a great climax. Now, a little later in the, in the prelude, we're going to hear a, a quotation from Venus singing to Tannhäuser the siren song, Geliebte, come, beloved. Come to me. So in the original version, Wagner wrote an overture, or a prelude, which has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Now, later on, he's going to interrupt that when he rewrites the opera for Paris, and he is going to expand on the Venusberg music, create a bacchanal to be danced, and then we'll go directly into the first scene of the opera. So the original version was an a large ABA structure. We had all of the religious music at the beginning. The B section then was the Venusberg and all the sensuality. And then he returned to the spirituality, as if spirituality triumphs at the end. And so you had a closed form. Now, when he rewrote Tannhäuser, he wanted it to go directly into the first scene. And so he dropped the second, the repeat of the religious music, and just stayed with the sensuous scene in Venusberg. Now, we hear the sirens on another, the ho- literally the chorus, the way that Ulysses described it in his Odyssey, a chorus of magical, distant, female, feminine voices drawing us into love. Wagner waited long and worked hard to get a premiere for one of his operas in Paris, and finally, Tannhäuser was chosen. But he knew he had to write a ballet, which he didn't really want to do, but. He put it in, but he put it in in the wrong place. What do I mean by that? It was a tradition, almost a rule, that in Paris, the ballet would be presented well into the middle of the evening because, well, a lot of the public didn't care about the singing, didn't much care even about the story. They cared about seeing the dance. And so they knew that if they showed up halfway through the evening, they would see their ballet. Wagner, in his inevitable manner of provocation, put it at the beginning of Act One, so that they would all miss it. Well, things didn't go so well for him in Paris. And you can understand why when you realize that he started out with that act of defiance to it all. But he did write one of the great, great ballets. And so we have it now today. And that Bacchanal plays through into the beginning of Act One. Now, in Act 1, we are meeting Venus and Tanoiser not in a moment of passion, but the sort of morning after, but not just the morning after. This is after a year, maybe more, of the same. And is getting tired and exhausted of it. Now, Venus never gets exhausted because it's all about her and she's a goddess. But he is troubled, and somehow he is drawn back to the real world, and he's drawn back to that spirituality which lives in him, and so he wants to leave. The first scene is going to show us Tannoys' struggle to get loose from Venus and her resentment when he does so. But he starts out with a song of praise to Venus, accompanied by the harp, which will be a very important combination in Act
0: Two. <laughs>
1: Now, when all of that commotion comes to a climax, Tannhäuser says, my redemption is in Maria, the Virgin Mother, at which point, Venusberg disappears. And we find Tannhäuser out in a valley near that mountain. And we are introduced to this very pastoral scene. There's a shepherd boy. He plays on his pipes, and in the distance, A chorus of pilgrims. Tannoyser is in a penitent mood, and so he sings from that second theme that you heard in the
0: prelude.
1: You heard that motive in the prelude, and by the cellos, and then by the violins. Now we meet the second story so to speak. It's all about the singing competition. It's called der Sängerkrieg. That means singers' war. And it is an actual historic event. It took place in the Middle Ages. These singers were called minnesingers. But that's not mini as in small. That means love. They sang about love, which is what all of the troubadours across Europe did. So that term, Minnesinger means a singer who sings about love. The mini-singers came together for a competition. They would all sing their songs about love and the Virgin Mary. We're going to see that in act two. Tannhäuser belongs to that group, but he's gone off and disappeared for a year, but his colleagues are glad to see him back. And so he will determine to attend and to sing at that competition. Tannhäuser is reunited with his old colleagues, who are glad to see him. And one of those colleagues is our next most important character. He's Wolfram, Wolfram von Eschenbach, a historical figure who was a great singer. Now, think of Wolfram and Tannhäuser as contrasting figures. They both love Elisabeth. Elisabeth loves Tannhäuser. She values Wolfram as a friend, but not as a lover. Tannhäuser is dramatic, driven, dynamic, and demonic. Wolfram is settled, quiet, reflective, almost shy. And their contrasting types of love are two contrasting portraits of humanity. When he sings, Wolfram, well, it's hard not to love him. All of this leads to the great singer Krieg in Act Two. And now we're going to see that preceded by a magnificent procession stage trumpets. You can hear the crowd gathering. And it continues. with this hymn-like song of praise. So now we are experiencing the very positive side of Romanticism to which Berlin referred. And for those who like tales of chivalry, we see knights, we see the populace, we see society at what it would think of at its best. loved processions. In fact, his earlier opera, Rienzi, is one procession after another, and he will return to that in his next music drama, Lohengrin. So here we have a parade, literally, of fantastic melodies and marches. Procession, procession, procession. And now the chorus will repeat all of that for us. Great pump. It's ready to begin. The singer's competition. Now, did I mention that there's a prize for the best song? Yes, the prize is the very Elizabeth. So, Tannhäuser has a big motivation. He'd like to marry her. And Wolfram has the same motivation. He, too, would like to be at his best. And so they start. The first voice to sing is Wolfram. You hear the soft, the quiet, expressive power of simplicity, with the harp accompaniment. This is a soul who is in peace with himself. Now, he's going to suffer from a broken heart, but he is consistent within his own personality. He's not troubled with that same struggle that Tannhäuser suffers. The crowd applauds and appreciates Wolfram. But Tannhäuser says, you know, you really don't get it. That's not what love is like. Well, Wolfram's song, Tannhäuser has answered, now Walter von der Vogelweider is going to sing. And he's going to tell us once again what love is all about.
0: In in uns
1: so, this is the same style as Wolfram. In fact, this is the accepted style of the Minnesinger.
0: Er in Durst für ihn entbrannte, du Heinrich kennst ihn wahrlich nicht. Lass dir denn sagen, lass dich lehren.
1: So now Walter has sung, but Tannhäuser says, you know, friend Walter, that's not it either. You haven't really experienced love. Love feels more like this. And here is his response. You can feel the excitement and the agitation in Tannhäuser. And the orchestra now starts to participate as well. The crowd is now very concerned. What's going on? Tannhäuser is not behaving as one should. So there's a very aggressive uh, troubadour minnesänger. His name is Bitterolf, and he responds now to Tannhäuser's latest outburst. Wolfram adds his voice again, somewhat more impassioned, to the fray. So you can see how the tension is heightened. Wolfrang sang, Tannhäuser contradicted him. Walter sang another contradiction from Tannhäuser. Bitterolf gets aggressive, Tannhäuser gets even more aggressive. And in getting aggressive, he finally sings out in full force his song of praise for Venus. And he does so in this song, and in the process tells everybody I have been to Venusberg and literally the entire city comes apart in our presence. So now we've come to the critical moment where the Singerfest is interrupted because of the social turmoil. The women run from the room. The men stay there, and they argue. Everybody turns against Tannhäuser. He is now fully an outsider because he has blasphemed. He has broken the norms of society. There is only one person who will come forward and try to defend him. And she can do so, and that's Elizabeth, because she has a moral authority that is unquestioned. And she is going to pray for him. She's going to beg for everybody to understand Tannhäuser. Here she is, her plea. You could hear this religious, spiritual character. And that motive is actually going to lead us into the next opera. It's going to become the Grail motive in its way, in Lohengrin, but I'm getting ahead of ourselves. The action will stop, and we will have an extended scene where everybody reflects on what has happened and what it means. Finally, the Landgraf says, well, You can only get forgiveness if you join the pilgrims and you go to Rome and you beg in Rome for forgiveness. And so the act will end with that decision of Tannhäuser. He sings nach Rome, to Rome, and so he goes. this magnificent spiritual music. This is going to give us the future in the symphonies of Anton Bruckner. So Act Two is done. Tannors has gone off to Rome. We're going to hope he gets forgiveness. Well, when we pick up the story again, it's many, many, many months later. We are given, once again, a prelude that is going to show us the main themes. Here they are. Quotation of the Pilgrim's Song and Elizabeth's Defense and Prayer for Tannhuser's Soul. Now, a third idea. This is going to show us the actual state of Tannhäuser's mind and soul as he, with full misery, walks to Rome. orchestra intones the theme of penitence again. And now an uplifting spiritual theme, the feast of grace. This is a prelude to the spirituality of Parsifal many years later. So when the curtain goes up, we meet Elizabeth and Wolfram. They have heard that the pilgrims are returning. And we hear the pilgrims, and we see the pilgrims, and we are hoping with them that Tannhäuser is amongst them. But he is not. Elizabeth, in despair, turns her mind to the Blessed Virgin Mary and prays to her. The entire prayer is accompanied by the woodwind instruments, giving a very special color to this spirituality. She will leave the stage, brokenhearted. Elizabeth and Wolfram believe Tannhäuser has perished. Wolfram would like to accompany Elizabeth. What does that mean? He offers himself in marriage to her. But she can only think of Tannhäuser her true love and her relationship to the spirit. Poor Wolfram. He's brokenhearted. And so he sings of this in his very famous excerpt, oh, O du mein Holder Abendstern, my beloved evening star. mysterious music begins. We hear first repeated notes on muted horns and a rising ominous figure in the string section. Towneuser is returning. It is significant that the distance between those horn notes and the strings is a so-called tritone. This interval was considered so difficult to sing, it was called diabolus in musica, the devil in music. And so that expresses the state of mind of Tannhäuser. This man is considered in league with the devil. He will tell the story how he went to Rome, deeply penitent, hoping for the forgiveness of the Pope. He will then quote the Pope as saying, You who have so vastly sinned can earn no forgiveness. You see this staff in my hand. Not until it sprouts will you be forgiven. Pretty much saying, there's no chance for you. Here is Tanwarzer telling us of that scene using those motives which you just heard. Well, as far as we're all concerned, and Tannhäuser, he's not going to get forgiveness, so he might as well go back to where he came from. He decides to conjure up, at least in his mind, Venus. He wants to go back to Venusberg, and magically, whether it's a dream, a vision, or reality, she appears. Well, that struggle comes back. Is it Venus? Is it Elizabeth? Is it sensual love? Is it spiritual love? He feels he's failed in spirituality, so he'd rather have his sensuality. But Wolfram evokes the name of Elizabeth, and so Tonheuser is brought to his senses and stands there dumbstruck. But Elizabeth has died. The end, of course, is very operatic. The soprano dies of a broken heart. The tenor dies of an exhausted heart. But they still tell an important story. And the important story is Elizabeth has actually sacrificed her life for Tannhäuser, and as so doing has gained him forgiveness. The pope's staff has sprouted leaves. And so we get a mystical story at the end of all of this. Tannhäuser's struggle is ended. He has been taken by the uh, all-embracing god of society. He has been forgiven. His soul is saved. We hear this by the women singing this chorale-like music, as if it's coming from heaven. This, too, is a precursor of Parsifal. Pilgrim's Chorus returns. Redemptive love has triumphed. Tannoys' soul has been saved. Society is intact once again through its religious beliefs. And we will finish this drama of the conflict of sensuous and spiritual love with the triumph of spiritual love. been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on Apple iTunes, Google Play,
0: or wherever you listen. Remember to share with your friends on your favorite social media, and we'll see you at the opera.